Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 40. This is where I would usually ask you to send in questions for the Q&A episodes, but today what I want to ask you is instead to send in suggestions for how to improve the podcast. I always want to be improving and make it the the best uh, podcast experience, triathlon podcast experience that you have, or maybe even podcast experience in general. Uh, so if there's anything that you're missing that you'd like to see see me do, see me add to the podcast, or anything that you'd like to see trashed, any feedback is welcome. Constructive criticism. Send any feedback that you have or suggestions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. And uh, I'll look through all of them, very all of the responses that I get, and uh, and get a, a feel for what uh, the audience wants. And uh, I can only implement the changes that I actually hear about. So uh, if there are thousands of listeners out there that uh, sit and think that I only, I wish that he could only improve this little thing with the podcast, but nobody emails me, then I'm not going to know about it. So please do take this opportunity to send send feedback and uh, let me know. All right, before today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. As I mentioned on a couple of episodes already, we are having a hydration Q&A coming up. I will record that with Andy Blow from Precision Hydration mid-July. So send in those questions that you have regarding hydration to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and I will add them to the backlog for that episode and we'll cover them in that upcoming hydration Q&A. In the meantime, as always, you can get your free and personalized hydration strategy on precisionhydration.com by taking their online sweat test. And if you want to try their products, use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, and that'll give you your first box or tube of hydrate electrolyte product for free. And thank you to Roka, the brand that redefines the standard in wetsuits, trisuits, eyewear, and several other triathlon and endurance sports product lines. I use and love many of Roka's products. In particular, the Maverick X wetsuit is a favorite of mine, as is the Gen 2 Elite Aero Tri Suit. I also use the Simpro 2 buoyancy shorts a lot, and I use the R1 goggles, SL1 sunglasses, and their Aviator sunglasses. So whatever you are looking for, you can go onto roka.com and get a fantastic 20% discount on your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. All right, first question for today. Steve in the United Kingdom writes, uh, uh, Michael, firstly, great podcast, keep it up. Second, I have a question. I recently qualified for uh, Nice 7.3 Worlds and belatedly this has now become my primary target for the season. Before qualifying, I had already entered Ironman UK, which is eight weeks before Nice, and the National Middle Distance Championships, three weeks before Nice. Can you think of any way to utilize either or both of these two races as part of my preparation for Nice? For example, go hard on the swim and first half of the bike before easing right off and cruising home? Or would I be, be, would I be better off just doing a nine-week training block and not racing either? I suspect that solid training has a greater performance benefit than racing when the tapering and recovery, which are necessarily a part of middle and long-distance racing, are taken into account. How do I judge how much recovery is necessary after a long race? In my hands, HRV doesn't seem to be all that sensitive. Steve, thank you for your question. It's a very good one. Uh, so let's tackle Ironman UK first. As I record this, we're 
just a bit more than three weeks out from that race i have an athlete racing there so uh, i know that uh, pretty pretty well uh, to be totally honest i can't think of any scenario where a full ironman would be good preparation for anything other than potentially another ironman but even that i think would be at a fairly unique level of performance like you have the cam worths of the world really we're thinking professional athletes here that that can race ironman and and they have uh, the genetics gifts to recover really really quickly from that sort of thing i would not recommend you nor anybody uh, to be honest uh, not even cam worth if i, if I was co- coaching him to race an ironman in preparation for a 7.3 race that is the most important goal so that's the key here you have identified that the 7.3 worlds is your goal race and with that in mind i remain uk that will not be ideal preparation no matter what you do uh, for ironman uk especially let's consider the course it's a very tough course so it is a brutally long day out and there's no hiding in that race it will require a significant amount of recovery even if you cruise home especially the run is what makes a lot of damage when when you're running 42 kilometers so if nice is the main goal my recommendation is to not do ironman uk simple as that really as for half distance nationals it can definitely work to do that three weeks before nice the question then becomes is it ideal again considering that you have identified the 7.3 worlds as your primary goal if i were coaching you I would probably not recommend taking the risk of racing half-distance nationals three weeks before if you consider that the 7.3 worlds is considerably more important. Instead, what I would do is at some other point, I would try to race two half Ironmans in relatively close proximity and see how you do with that sort of schedule. So whether you can actually use the first race to get fitter for the second race and perform better in the second race because for many athletes and i include age group athletes there that's what happens Uh, so but trying something new like that out when the stakes are high like you have certain three words coming up that's not necessarily ideal if that is indeed your main goal Uh, so so i would try it out try that too closely uh too close half ironmans uh, in close proximity i would try that tactic out when you have some lower key races going on all that being said for yours and all the listeners uh, additional benefit and speaking generally i think that racing a half ironman three weeks before a goal half ironman a, a more important goal half ironman can be completely fine even if it's not necessarily always better than training whether it's better that's really where again you have to do this test yourself in a low stakes scenario and see what works for you and every listener has to do that because it can be quite individual but with the right training structure leading up to that first race and between the first and the second race uh, it does not have to be much worse than the alternative of or any worse than the alternative of of just training through that uh, or training until that second key race and skipping the first race it does not have to be worse than that alternative either so what you might consider in if you want to do give this sort of thing a go is to not really taper much for that first event that is let's call it a b race and uh, just train through it basically or just give a give it a short mini taper so take two or maybe three easy days before that race and that will ma- maximize the amount of training that you that you can do before that first race 
because then you are absolutely right that you cannot shortchange the recovery after your race. You will need that. How much that is very individual. You have to, I would start to do some active recovery training the day after a race. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely recommended. And then just do a little training every day, a little running, a little cycling, a little swimming, and uh, slowly but surely start to feel your legs your muscles recover your body recover uh, start to feel that uh, maybe you you get that oomph back in your swim stroke and in your running stride and your pedal stroke on the bike so so just take it day by day give it a go every now and then we do some strides on the run some short sprints on the swim and the bike to just see how your body responds to that higher intensity but without taxing your body you just have to be confident in taking that recovery so you have to keep that training load after the event low and uh, and know that that is at the end of the day going to be much better than the alternative. So potentially what you can do is that in the middle week between those two races, if you ha- if the races are three weeks apart, uh, you might be recovered enough to, sh- to do enough, vo- to do quite a bit of volume and, and quality in that week. But if you have to take the early part of that week as an easy training period, then you do that. It's There's no point trying to do hard, high-volume training if your body is clearly telling you that it's not recovered. And you mentioned HRV. I think HRV can can work good, well, but it's not uh, the be-all, end-all. By any means, the be-all, end-all is to tune into your body, listen to what it's telling you and how it's reacting to the training, to the small tests, the strides, the sprints that I, that I just talked about, and and assess where you are do you feel recovered do you feel ready to do maybe not go right into your biggest and hardest sessions but but try a a shorter sweet spot workout or something like that do do you feel ready when you feel ready chances are that you that you are actually ready i don't want to give any specific guidelines for the time course because it is so individual at the end of the day it can be a few days it can be a couple of days for some athletes it's ridiculously fast for some athletes it can easily be two weeks from 7.3 so there's just too wide a range to give specific guidelines on on that so assess your your body state physically but also your mental state your motivation to get back training that tells a lot when you're ready to get back into your normal training another thing that i want to point out about why you don't need to worry too much about losing training because of having a B race in the lead up to a race is that actually when you are doing your normal training, you do need to have recovery at some points in that training program anyway. So for example, let's say you do two two hard weeks, two weeks of pretty high volume and some intensity in there, then at some point you need to take a few days of, of very low, tr- low training load. Uh, so it might be two weeks, it might be three weeks, but at some point you need those days of, of low training load to, to adapt to that training and, and recover and get ready for the next block. So if you structure your program cleverly, then that B race uh, that could come at the end of a two to three week building block with, with a high training load. And in that situation, even if you weren't to do the race, then some easier training would have followed. So with the race, the only thing that changes is that maybe you need a bit more recovery, a few more days, sure. Uh, but if we say that the average recovery amount that is needed after 7.3 might be one week or so, uh, then it won't be that much additional recovery compared to what you might have had otherwise. And if you actually do the race flat out and you, you recover well, then you, you might get that great supercompensation effect. There is such a thing as racing yourself into fitness and, and it's not it's not a myth or anything. So if you look at it that way, 
you see that a build-up uh, race, a half Ironman as a build-up race, is not necessarily super costly. It can actually be more beneficial than the alternative, especially if you you don't worry about tapering into that into that race because then you don't lose any training before the race, only after. So to sum up, uh, there are ways to structure your training so that a half Ironman three weeks before another half Ironman can act as great preparation. But it's best to try this with uh, a slightly less important second event so that you uh, know more clearly what how much recovery you need and, and how you should structure the training in between those races. So for you in this scenario, perhaps the better bet would be to focus on the training as you suggest and maybe find an Olympic or two that you can do through the training block. One more comment, I would say that if you are going to enter a national championship event, then you should never hold back. You are in the national championships, you go for it, man. Go there, race as fast as you can. Uh, I think it's uh, it's important to, to respect the race and the, the rest of the field as well by, by going there to race if you go to a national championship event. So, so that's uh, a final comment that I have about your question. And then you just uh, adjust the recovery accordingly. Uh, that's uh, what you need to do. All right, thank you again for your question, Steve. The next one is from Todd in uh, Tennessee, the United States. And uh, Todd asks, when would you ride a road bike uh, during a triathlon? For example, would you consider a road bike for Ironman 7.3 Worlds in Nice? So you notice a theme here. There are a lot of Ironman 7.3 Worlds questions with uh, that race coming up in, I believe, 11 and a half weeks or so by the time of this recording. By the time you hear this, it might be 10 and a half weeks. Uh, either way, basically how I would go about it is uh, I would do some calculations. Uh, so, uh, so for example, I can estimate that, uh, do a crude estimate that uh, on flat and rolling terrain, I go about three kilometers per hour faster on my triathlon bike than on my road bike. And you, of course, need to assess what this number is for you. So let's take two example speeds here. Let's take on the road bike with the road bike as a baseline let's take 40 kilometers per hour and 30 kilometers per hour so if i go 40 kilometers per hour on the road bike and 43 on the tri bike for a distance let's call it 10 kilometers and remember this is flat or rolling terrain uh, like moderately rolling like not not too big hills or anything like that but it doesn't have to be pancake flat either that means that i'm make you doing that 10 kilometer segment one minute, two seconds faster on the tri bike than the road bike. Uh, this difference grows, of course, if I go slower at 30 kilometers per hour on the road bike versus 33 kilometers per hour on the tri bike. The difference is one minute 48. Uh, so that's just to give you some uh, perspective and some, some reference. And now, obviously, if you have uh, 20 kilometers in total of that sort of flattish or gently undulating road then you'll just have to multiply those time gains uh, so if if it were the 40 versus 43 kilometer per hour scenario and we have 20 kilometers as part of a race that is flat-ish terrain then it would be two minutes and four seconds that i save by having the tri bike just based on this remember this is a very crude estimate here going three kilometers per hour faster on my tri bike that's just my sort of gut feel now what you need to ask yourself is and uh, and assess and maybe test is that based on that the amount of flattish and undulating road in a particular race on a particular race course and how quickly you are likely to ride them so if your speed on the road bike would be 35 then you would take that as your calculation speed if it's 25 then you take 25 etc 
so you calculate how much time you save with a tri bike on those flatter segments. And, and now you assess how likely are you to make up that time on the ascents and the descents of the course with a road bike versus tri bike. Because chances are that you will be as fast or faster on the road bike versus tri bike on those uh, climbs and, and descents. Now, there is an argument, uh, a fairly good argument, and, and there are people that are much more well-versed in this than me, uh, like, for example, uh, the Flow Guys, uh, uh, John and Chris Fornham, who, have, who I've had on uh, in a past episode. Uh, there is an argument that, that in almost any triathlon in the world, the added weight of a tri-bike compared to the road bike is a very small factor. The weight isn't really that big a factor when it comes to how much faster you go on the, on the climbs. So theoretically, you don't really need to, if you, if we take a theoretical example and we only do use calculations here, then I wouldn't really calculate that weight difference. I, I wouldn't take that into account in the, in the calculations here. However, there is a, a fairly good chance that you can either push more power when, when climbing on a road bike or just use that power more effectively due to your position on the bike. So, I think that this is really a case for actually doing some some testing out on the road with the tri bike and the road bike. On go to some local hills and compare a how much power can you push on each bike up a given segment. So say you have a, a hill that is roughly roughly five minutes, you go as hard as you can for five minutes or up the hill on the road bike, and uh, then you do it again on the tri bike, probably on separate days. That's what I would do at least. And, and you see if uh, there is a significant difference in how much power you can actually produce. Now, B, the second thing you need to do is to time how fast can you go up that segment for a fixed power. So let's say your, your race uh, pace, your race power. So settle into that power on the road bike and go up that segment and, and see how fast you went. And same thing on the tri bike. And that information will, will of course be very, very insightful for you and, and give you give you an idea of how much time you might save on the on the climbs on the course so that's where you need to sit down and and see well how long are the climbs in the race that i'm doing compared to the climb that i did and and how steep are they what's the time that i'm going to be out on those climbs going to be roughly and and how can i extrapolate those findings that i just found in my test and and what might that translate to on the race course and actually a great thing that you can do then is that you can use a tool like Best Bike Split and uh, load that course that you're going to do into Best Bike Split and, uh, and just add your two bikes. And to have two separate bikes, you would need to have a premium account, but it's well worth it to, even if you just uh, buy it for a month uh, as you do this test, I, you might even be able to have a free trial for a month. And so you might not need to pay anything. Either way, you can use a tool like Best Bike Split, add your two bikes, your road bike and your tri bike, and that course and and then you can actually compare different segments so you can see just that climbing seb segment based on your road bike and your tri bike and the same sort of power what theoretically uh, would be the difference in in time but also make sure that that you don't let these computer simulations override your findings that you define, found in the practical experiment uh, I'd also argue that uh, then potentially the the largest gains on a hilly course for the road bike would actually come from being able to descend tricky descents better. This, of course, assumes that the descents are actually uh, a bit tricky and, and challenging and not just 
very gentle straight descents where you can just zoom down on your tri bike but but if there is any technical descending in in your goal race then being able to go on the road bike should for most people allow them to go more aggressively without as much braking and uh, that's this is again a place where you really need to go out and test some local descents ideally of course ones that represent the kind of descents that you might face on race day test them on both bikes and and see how much faster you can go on one bike versus the other because maybe if the the descents aren't very curvy they, they are fairly straight they're not that steep so you feel comfortable going fast and going in the aero bars all times and holding your position then you might be a lot faster on the tri bike so that's something that you simply need to try now with this knowledge in mind of how much faster or not you might be climbing and uh, and descending on the road bike compared to uh, the tri bike uh, then compare that with uh, the amount of time that you gained on the flat courses of the race and and make an informed decision on which option to go with uh, so so the i guess the assessment here the uh, the review to decide which bike to go with it includes both theoretical but also uh, practical testing as for the specific race that you're racing nice 7.3 worlds i'm also racing that but i haven't done this preparation myself yet which i realized when i was answering your question so it was an interesting thing actually that you brought it up uh, so i checked the bike course nice has around 25 kilometers of pretty much uh, pancake flat or very gently undulating riding and uh, so for example for me personally i calculated that if i ride at 43 kilometers per hour on my tri bike on those pancake flat flat sections instead of 40 kilometers per hour on the road bike i save 2.5 minutes in total on those flat segments i feel pretty good about my climbing skills on the tri bike i don't think i would lose much time compared to the road bike uh, but actually considering the descents and i need to to be honest i haven't checked the course carefully enough yet to to give you a clear answer on what i'm going to do even but if the descents are tricky i think that i do know that i'm a much better descender on the road bike i'm, I'm a pretty good descender on the road bike and not as comfortable on the tri bike definitely not so uh, so i can tell you that that i will definitely go out and test this and uh, test my descending skills on the road bike versus the tri bike and uh, so i thank you for your question also for me personally because this opened up my eyes to the fact that i need to go out and do this testing myself because if it, there is a chance that that all that descending that is available on the knees course that that would allow me to save actually as much as 2.5 kilometers especially if i save even a little bit going the, up the road bike rather than the tri bike uh, up the hills which i mean yeah I, I should save a little bit of time i i'm not saying that you don't save anything i'm just saying that weight isn't as important as uh, as some other factors at least not when you consider that the difference in in weight might be two kilograms or or something like that at, at most if you have a heavier heavier tri bike so so that's uh, my recommendation if you by the way if you find that you are going to use a road bike definitely use clip-on aero bars so that you can make the most of those flat segments as well and go as fast as possible on them and maybe bridge the gap compared with the speed that you would be doing on on the tri bike also one more suggestion uh, so i mentioned that that three kilometer per hour difference that was a, a bit of a not wild guess but a, a guesstimate from me so what you can do is you can use best bike split or a website like gribble.org uh, so to get better numbers for how much faster you might be going uh, for a given power on the tri bike versus the road bike 
So for example, I used gribble.org for to prepare for this question. And if I add, add in a 75 kilogram rider with a 10 kilogram bike and a CDA of 0.3, which might be the road bike and 0.25 on the tri bike, uh, and they are pedaling at 250 watts, they would go from 36.9 kilometers per hour on the road bike to 39.3 on the tri bike. So that's just south of a 2.5 kilometer per hour difference. So, so I wasn't that far off actually with that three kilometer per hour estimate. Either way, thank you so much for your question, Todd, and uh, good luck in Nice. And uh, by the way, I just sent you your the analysis and the report from your inside testing. So I hope that that will also be useful for you uh, in preparation for in these last 11 weeks or whatever we have left when you hear this. The last question, this one came in from Instagram. So uh, a quick uh, tiny nudge to go and follow us on Instagram where uh, we now have an official account at Scientific Triathlon HQ. And uh, this uh, question is from Lashie in Australia who writes, uh, what, what are your views on making up calories after big days where you can't meet caloric demands? Okay, I have quite a lot on, to say on this, maybe too much. <laughs> so, so bear with me. It's a great question. The balance of training, rest, and nutrition is actually an area that I'm currently focusing on educating myself in a lot. That This is like really where I'm putting my self-education time. There is some really fascinating stuff out there. I'm still getting my thoughts and notes together and talking with some very knowledgeable people, but count on hearing more about this topic in a not-too-distant future, I would say. Either way, way what I can tell you right now is that... Uh, I would not make up calories later. I would definitely make sure that you actually meet caloric demands, no matter how hard it may seem. Because if you're not, you might not be getting the adaptations that you want. Uh, to give some context to the listeners that probably don't know this, Lashley is a professional triathlete. Uh, and from what I can tell from seeing your, your pictures on Instagram, uh, you're not very heavy. Uh, let's make some very rough estimates of what your caloric expenditure during a big day might be. Let's say you swim for one hour 30 and call that 1,000 calories. You bike for five hours and we call that 4,000 calories, 800 per hour. And you run for an hour and a half and we call that uh, 1,200 calories. And let's estimate that your non-exercise related um, caloric expenditure is uh, 2,500 calories per day. Uh, that would mean that you have to get in 8,700 calories uh, during that day to uh, to replace the calories that you lost. And that makes sense. Recall that Michael Phelps was famous for uh, for eating, getting in 10,000 calories per day. Of course, he's much bigger than you, so his basal metabolic rate would be much bigger, and and his expenditure in in workouts as well, although swimming burns slightly less than, than for example, running. So, so that also compensates for it. And with a big day like this, there would be a five-hour ride and two one-and-a-half-hour workouts to swim and a run. That's eight hours of training. So 8,700, it, it makes sense that that's how much you have to consume and at the power output that you're producing as well as a professional athlete. And we're not just talking power on the bike, but it's power on the, on the swim and power on the, on the run. You have the capacity to produce great powers to to mobilize a lot of energy and use that to propel you forward in all the three disciplines that means that a lot of energy is consumed and used by the body and, and you just have to replace it so for the listeners that may be shocked by hearing this 8700 calories per day you have to do your own math this doesn't apply to you uh, specifically these numbers although the same concepts they do apply to you 
so 8,700 calories, that is challenging and unless you really make it a point to fuel diligent, diligently in your workouts. So for a big day like this, for somebody like you, I would tell you to fuel as much as possible in the workouts themselves, even if you don't feel you need to, for example, in that first morning swim. Go and listen to episode 40 of the podcast, Race Day Fueling and the Core Diet with Jesse Kropolnicki. Jesse talks about trying to get half of your workout expenditure in during the workout itself. I think that might, I mean, I think that would be great. On a big day, it would be great to do that for sure. I would definitely, uh, definitely support that if, if you were to do that. I think that it's difficult though, and perhaps not realistic to expect you to, to jump to that level of energy consumption during your workouts. So I would say try to get in at least a third of your caloric expenditure, or let's call it a third on the swim and the run and, and a bit more than a third on the bike. So, because it's just so easy to eat on the bike. It's a, a rolling buffet, as we all know. So, so during the swim, uh, you can get in a bit more than 300 calories. Uh, so that would be, for example, roughly one liter of sports drink uh, off the top of my head and uh, 400 calories on the run. So that would be a third of 1,200. That would be, for example, four gels. And on the bike per hour, you would try to get in 300 to 350 calories per hour. So close to that 50%, which would be 400 calories per hour in this example. So for example, we'll go for four gels actually, and that will bring you up to, to that 50%. Let's go for that. That leaves you with around about, and I've done these calculations in advance. I'm not very good at doing math in my head. Uh, 6,200 calories that you still need to consume in your daily nutrition. So, so you got in 2,500 only during your workouts. Uh, well, only, I mean, that could fuel a pretty large person for, for their just basal needs without any training. So, so, so that's quite a lot, but, uh, but you still have a, lo- a long way to go after eating all of that and drinking all of that in your swimming, biking and running. So definitely before anything, start today with a big 1000 plus uh, calorie breakfast and have another even bigger meal after that swim. So 1500 calories or something like that. And this actually isn't that difficult when you start to to calculate how much calories you get in from uh, from various things. I would personally, I would go for something like like oatmeal or bircher muesli, something that I'm eating a lot right now, getting a ton of good fiber and carbohydrate and adding in fruit, berries, and some healthy fats maybe, like, like nuts and seeds or nut butters. Make sure you get some good protein, maybe maybe eggs. Uh, you can make scrambled eggs, eggs with wedges to, wedges to get a head start on your veggie consumption for the day. Uh, or it could be Greek yogurt, or it could be scrambled eggs and Greek yogurt. And in that Greek yogurt, you might again mix in some fruits and berries or things like that. So, and you might also have something in your beverage like orange juice to drink or uh, something like that. And of course, coffee that you have to have coffee if you're going to go out for a big day. I'm just going on and on here and getting really hungry actually as I, as I do this. But just to give, give you suggestions and examples, you could have some whole grain bread with, with nut butter and, and banana. Uh, there are just so many options and 1000 calories adds up rather quickly, which is a good thing for you. And then after that 1000 and 1500 calorie meal that you would have around the swim, that leaves you with 3,700 calories left to consume after your, let's assume it's a long bike with a, with a run off the bike. So 
definitely start start with a recovery shake plus a big late lunch once you get in from that workout i, I don't know when you get started working out but but you might get in for a late lunch at four or something with a big day day like that uh, so include veggies in that lunch because on big training days it's uh, quite easy to forget to have your veggies so make sure that you do get that but also of course that you need you get a lot of calories so something in the region of uh, 1500 to 2000 calories for for that meal including the recovery shake uh, immediately after and then the uh, then the meal itself uh, is what i would uh, would consume because remember you've at this point been cycling for five hours and, and running for an hour and a half if you find it difficult to get this from from the recovery drink and uh, and the food then go for that dessert man seriously you would deserve it and need it at that point and uh, then after that meal uh, you might uh, have some healthy snack later on maybe a, a smoothie made with veggies and fruit and some protein powder of let's say 500 to 600 calories and then a dinner later on a late dinner at 7 30 8 o'clock of around 1000 or slightly more calories do not concern yourself with eating late uh, at this point it's much more important it, it would be much more detrimental to not uh, not get in the calories that you lost than to be concerned with uh, with the with eating late and whatever tiny disadvantages you might have from that so it is a lot of eating but we're talking eight hours of training here at very high energy outputs at uh, at the level of training that you're at so so i want to reiterate the reason why this is so important and, and the reason is super compensation when you do a massive day of training you impose a big big stress on the body and the body reacts by trying to adapt to that stress with processes like muscle protein synthesis cardiovascular and respiratory adaptations uh, mitochondriogenesis and, and other cellular adaptations but and this is a big but if the body is in starvation mode or in low energy availability that will cause a shutdown a complete or partial shutdown of uh, of processes that are not deemed as essential as just pure survival and energy conservation and becoming a faster triathlete as much as we might think it is it's certainly not one of those essential vital processes in the mind of the body at least uh, so so that supercompensation process and and the adaptations that you are after those require that you actually recover with nutrition with fuel as well and have those have that energy on board otherwise the body won't be able to to adapt to the stress that you just uh, impose on it the other factor here is uh, glycogenesis, so the synthesis and, and restorage of glycogen in your body. That's a process that takes 24 to 48 hours, even with proper fueling. So if you don't adequately replace your calories and importantly replace carbohydrate after a big training day, then instead of it taking you one to two days to go through that uh, glycogenesis, glycogenesis, it will take you two to three days. So you either lose a day of potentially decent training or worse, you try to do training that you're not metabolically metabolically ready for because uh, your glycogenesis process is still ongoing and you don't have glycogen stores on board to do that training. And that means that you don't get the adaptations that you want from that training either. Uh, so, And that can be the start of a slippery slope. And the bad circle of uh, training on and on in metabolically suboptimal states and not having uh, the quality in training that you could have had 
or not getting the desired adaptations from the training because of that. And at some point, if worst case scenario, this could lead to the illness or to chronic fatigue or, or to overtraining. Uh, and uh, lastly, I'll, I have some interesting, an interesting paper or document that I'll email you with some additional reading that is sort of related to this topic, partially related, overlapping. I know you will find it very interesting. So, so look forward to an email uh, from me very soon. And please email me if I if I forget because I'll I'll wait until this episode is is released to do that. So it makes more sense in the context. All right, uh, that's a wrap for today. I'll link in the episode description to some tools that I mentioned, Best Bike Split and Gribble.org, which is another bike sort of speed power aerodynamics calculator that you can use for free. And to the episode that I just mentioned in the last question, Race Day Fueling and the Core Diet with Jessica Polnicki, episode 40. That's one of the most, the best liked episodes that I've done. I get emails to this day of people saying that that, that episode completely changed their view on fueling and uh, and nutrition in triathlon. If you're new to the podcast and new to Scientific Triathlon, just a quick reminder here of the products and services that we offer on scientifictriathlon.com. We have ready-made training plans for sprint through Ironman distances, customized training plans, customized to you. And we have individual coaching, although I should say that both myself and James are at capacity at the moment. We do have a waiting list though, so uh, you can join that and get notified if slots become available. And then we have the inside testing service, which is a sort of critical power testing protocol that essentially turns your power meter into a laboratory and uh, gives you complete insight into your uh, insight into your physiology. And that, by the way, will tell you how much energy and how much carbohydrate you expend on those big days so that you can adjust your nutrition and your carbohydrate intake accordingly. Some other house cleaning items, as mentioned, remember to follow us on Instagram at Scientific Triathlon HQ. And also, since we had sort of a 70.3 words themed episode today, any listeners that are participating there and that might be interested in a meetup or something in Nice, uh, send me an email, michael at scientifictriathlon.com and let me know. And we'll see if we can put something like that together. It would be kind of fun, I think. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Take their free online sweat test and use the promo code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps, to get your first box or tube for free. And thank you to Roka. Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.